Welcome to the Natural Running Network. My name is Richard Diaz, and what I hope to do is introduce you to some amazing athletes and luminaries from the sports science community, and what has come to be expected, I'll provide some highly opinionated rants on all aspects of endurance sports and my current favorite, obstacle course racing. But before I get started, I want to give a shout out to Human Octane. If you're the kind of person who pushes the limit, then you've got to check out Human Octane Apparel. Training and racing apparel designed by OCR athletes and these guys just get it. Everything they make dries lightning fast, has zippered pockets, is abrasion resistant in high contact areas without bulky padding. I've gotten to know these guys and trust me, they're going to out-innovate the competition when it comes to OCR gear. Check them out at humanoctane.com. Now sit tight, grab a cup of coffee, and let's do this. Well, folks, it's almost New Year, and to celebrate the New Year's, we're going to do a podcast for the New Year with Rich, and we're going to talk about a few things in regards to a video that he and Hunter did yesterday. Rich, how are you? I'm good. I'm looking forward to the New Year. I'm really looking to get out of this limbo time of the year where you're kind of between holidays and you're not done eating all the cookies people gave you, and you're just disgusted with the way you look and feel, and you're ready to get into the new year and try to square it all up again. Yeah, the off season almost turns into uh, a, a real uh, eating uh, binge and, and such. But yeah, no, I, I agree with you. It's it's exciting to get into the new year, and you know, a lot of us have a, a lot of ambition going into it. So, you know, really excited. One thing we wanted to kind of just bring up uh, was the the video you posted yesterday with Hunter him coming into the lab, him getting his VO2 testing, and then, you know, obviously going into that, the goals that he has for next year really differ uh, just from like the last podcast we have in, in terms of going long, going short. So just kind of wanted to get your thoughts a little more in terms of what, what, we, what you talked about uh, with Hunter yesterday. Okay, so before we get into that, let me just kind of preface it by saying this. Hunter and I have been doing business together for a few years now, and we were talking about it. I started first working with Hunter back in uh, 2015, and we've been connected pretty much all through since then. What happens is typically he'll come in and we do some training, but around this time of the year, I always start the season off with him by conducting some assessments. And essentially what we do is we look to see what his state of fitness is as we lead into the new season. And we look at, comparatively, how things have been going. And then we look at the goals. And what I found interesting is that, historically, over the last few years, the focus has always been pretty much the same. The uh, preeminent event for him was always uh, the World Championships through uh, Spartan. And this has always kind of been a tough event for him because being a big guy going along is a challenge. And he's racing against some of these whippets that are much, much lighter than he is and have far less cost in energy demand to perform in these events. So it's always been a hurdle. And, you know, as you know, and most people that are listening know, that he's generally very successful in events that are in the super or shorter distance 
range. As a matter of fact, when we first met, I spoke of the fact that I thought what he should do is focus on these shorter events because he could own those. And it's just very difficult to be all things at all times. Here we are now. He's come to that place where he's realized, and due to the way the sport is shaping up, he's going to be more successful, not just as an athlete, but financially more successful because the purses are getting to be very entertaining with the Tough Mudder. And so he's basically put all his chips on the table for Tough Mudder and focusing on you know, winning these shorter sprint TMX events. So it turns out that the Spartan events are pretty much off the table for Hunter. He's decided that it's probably just not a good idea to chase those events down. So politics aside, I think that this season, our focus is flipped. We're looking at shorter and more high-intensity events, and the preparation for those type of events is what we had on our table yesterday. And the interview we did clearly lays that out. We discussed what the approach might be given someone trying to prepare themselves for a short-duration, high-intensity event. Yeah, it was, it was a really good video, and if anybody wants to see it, just go to the naturalrunningnetwork.com. It's about 13 minutes and really does a good job of just depicting what Hunter wants to do and then just good two-way feedback between Hunter and Rich. One thing I thought that was interesting in that video was talking about aerobic work. Now, obviously, you know, when we talked beforehand, Hunter is pretty much doing two-a-days in terms of running and then also lifting. I think for a lot of people that have the same ambitions as Hunter next year in terms of going short and going for sprint to TMX distances, uh, can you kind of touch on, Rich, what you would suggest for someone like that in terms of running? Well, to begin with, going back to the assessment, mm -hmm. we did a VO2, and a lot of people are confused or really uh, ill-informed in respect to what this test is all about. And for me, when I'm working with an athlete, what I'm looking for is potential and current ability. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty much telling me where they stand, what their strengths and their weaknesses are, and we start to develop an opinion about what needs to happen next. Now, given that on the off-season, someone like Hunter has been focusing on a lot of high-intensity work, leading into an event that's coming up relatively soon, he was heavier than he typically might be. I want to say that I'm not going to go into grave detail about what Hunter could or could not do or what his numbers look like because, honestly, that's just not fair to him. I'm Agreed. Not, yeah, I'm just not comfortable divulging all of his uh, innermost secrets in respect to his training plans and what have you when there's predators out there that are you know, dying to find out what he might be doing and possibly wanting to mimic what he's done. Mm -hmm. But from a global perspective, what I look at, and let's just kind of eliminate Hunter from the equation for a minute. Let's just say you came in, and your focus was, I want to go in and I want to crush these short-distance events in the early season. And then what I'm looking at is the test is revealing who you are to me. What is your aerobic or anaerobic potential? And how sophisticated is your, your engine? Uh, what is the depth of your VO2 score? And then I kind of look at the, the whole picture and try, try to decide 
what the appropriate training modalities would be leading into the event. So I don't do that from an opinion. I do that from this data that's spilling out to me as you're being tested. Now I'm armed with a lot of good information to share with you, and we start discussing what the plans might be. Now, let's just say hypothetically that you came into me with a really low threshold and you're exhibiting a really high VO2 score. It would almost seem to be contradictory, but it would depict essentially the way you've been morphing your muscle structure and function. If you've been putting a lot of work into the gym, you're going to probably see a bit of a degradation in your aerobic potential. Not probably, you will see a degradation in that aerobic potential. Now, given that the event that you're going to be training for or racing in, the context of the conversation we were having where the event is going to be in the nature of 12 minutes, we're not that concerned about your aerobic potential. Now, certainly you do need aerobic potential in order to achieve a 12-minute effort. But really more importantly is what happens to you once you go over your threshold and the lactic acid buildup is starting to become too toxic for you. So we want to push that threshold, but not just push the threshold, but cause you to be more capable of processing that ensuing lactate production. And so it no longer becomes debilitating, but it becomes more of an asset to you. And that seems like a complicated thing, but it's really not. As you saw that I kind of narrowed down in the conversation with Hunter, is that the focus for the most part should be dedicated more exclusively to, to high intensity, short duration interval type training. And so the, the benefit of having that test is it gives us a starting point, gives us a jump off point in which to start to develop a training process. More importantly, what it does, it gives me hard numbers to work from. So I know relative to the information I saw where his body is going to be most toxic. And then I can also see where he's most capable of dealing with that toxicity. And then I can also look at the numbers that would be more important to him as an athlete to use as a governor on the low end for the intervals. So I'm actually developing prescription of intervals and or training relative to the data I'm getting from the test result. Another question comes in, and let's just kind of take Hunter out of the equation. Let's say any athletes that you work with, how often, because obviously you've had a relationship with a bunch of your athletes, how often would you suggest someone uh, to get their VO2 tested? Well, clearly being tested frequently would be kind of a novelty and, and, and obviously mm -hmm. an expensive proposition. Of course. Uh, where I don't know that it's necessary. I think that once you've been tested, if you're field testing yourself, if you're conducting time trials periodically, you're starting to understand the mechanisms that are changing you. And then once you get that wired, you can get a pretty good sense of how to react to your training or, or how to shift your training relative to the outcome of these time trials, per se. Let's say, for example, that your intervals are based on a particular top-end heart rate you're trying to achieve and a particular low-end heart rate to recover. And initially, to achieve that recovery heart rate at the end of the top-end heart rate, you've identified that the timeline in recovery is two minutes. And then through the course of work, you're starting to notice a regression in the amount of time it takes to recover. So let's say that you get down to about a minute or even 45 seconds in recovery. Clearly, there's something going on, and it's working in your favor. So 
you could potentially adjust your training to make your training more aggressive in order to cause the body to adapt to the new stimulus. And or you could give yourself credit for the, the benefits that you're seeing. Because when you're recovering quicker, it's testament that your heart rate is shutting down because it's no longer required to evacuate the waste or pump in new nutrient and oxygen to the working muscles, which are based on demand. So you could take into account that there's a good chance that you're actually accessing more fat stores. You're actually able to liberate more of the lactate from the working muscles. So you can make your own adjustments based on the findings from the results of your time trials. I guess what I'm saying is that if you're really diligent in chasing the data, you're going to find that you're probably not going to need to be tested again for, in a perfect world, maybe 12 weeks. And that's assuming that you're a competitive athlete and you're wanting to make sure that everything is going well. Typically, what I like to see have happen is that let's kind of reflect back on a previous year where we're looking at training over the course of the season with the A game being the world's championships. We may come back in for a test four or five weeks prior to world championships just to see how things are going. It just depends. Uh, it just depends on how your body's responding to the work and whether you're starting to get quizzical about your threshold and what you think you should be doing respect to the threshold. So it's not a function of me trying to talk somebody into test more often. It's really a function of if you're doing a good job with your training, odds are you won't have to test that frequently. The reason I ask is, one, I've just heard the question, and two, I, I almost think of the same question. I got my test about a month ago last year, and I'm thinking about getting it for the new season probably about two or three weeks before my first race. So it, it's just one of those things I wanted to bounce off you, and I'm sure that question is thought by a lot of others. In regards to something also that was touched on in the video, strength to weight ratio, is there a specific kind of exercise or number that you'd be looking for for an athlete? Is there a certain number or is there something in terms of that strength to weight ratio that you're looking at in terms of an exercise to determine um, if an athlete is, is meeting that, pro that quota? I think that commonly what you find is through experience what you're able to move. Now, realize that more muscularity, denser muscle, and I'm not talking about volume, I'm not talking about just big puffy muscle, but yeah. we're, we're looking at strength, we're not talking about mm -hmm. size. So mm -hmm. if you're getting on the scale and you're identifying that you've gained 10 pounds mm -hmm. and your body fat is coming up suggesting that uh, a lot of what you're gaining is muscle, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's in your favor. You could potentially be stronger and lighter at the same time. And so it's very unique to the individual. It becomes an experiential thing. How quickly can you move that load? And how stable are you relative to the strength you've created? Because your force production is really dependent upon your stability and your power. And your power is related to your ultimate strength. So the conversation we were having was relative to an individual that I've worked with for a few years. And I've seen fluctuations in his weight and I've seen the outcome relative to his experiences at those various weights. So in, in his case, and again, I, I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but in his case, I found that when he gets down under 190 pounds, he starts to sacrifice his strength. Now, relatively speaking, other guys would do pretty well, even lighter, but from I'm talking about from a strength perspective, but in his case, 
his asset to me is really the strength that he carries and the speed in which he can do it. So if he gets up over a couple hundred pounds, he'll start to sacrifice his endurance and his speed. But when he starts getting below 190, he starts to sacrifice his strength. And he'll get faster, but he'll sacrifice his ability to get through some of the, the obstacles that he, he faces. Now, leading into an event like this TMX, where strength is a major component of the event, but more so this lactate tolerance, as I suggested in the video, is really the critical component of the process. Because if you're strong enough to get through the exercises, it doesn't mean that you're not going to produce a ton of lactate. And what happens is this ensuing lactate production is not dispelled. It starts to shut you down. You can't run anymore. You start to lose your ability to move the weight. And so there's just this really fine line that you have to tread when it comes to determining how much weight you should carry into the game and how much strength relative to that weight you have. So I think everybody is, is thinking of it in terms of obviously whether it's whatever event, Spartan, Tough Mudder, and that question is there. And Should I gain weight to gain strength or should I? And I think to your point, it's, it's about stabilizing your weight and, and becoming stronger. But uh, I think that's a formula that it is hard to find, but uh, many athletes have been able to find it. Well, it really comes down to the type of exercises you do, too. I think what's going to happen over time is it's going to change, and it's already starting to change with the advent of CrossFit. So yeah. CrossFit came along, and they pretty much revolutionized the concept of strength training, where typically going into a gym and exercising, and I'm coming from that background where I, I've owned gyms for nearly two decades, and the, the equipment in a gym is designed to be plug-and-play. It's designed for you to, as a consumer, to go into the gym and be able to conduct yourself without any education and not get hurt. And so a lot of the movement patterns are isolated and they're safe, where in strength training, a lot of times the equation is risk versus benefit. The more risk you take on, the more benefit you yield. But it's, again, that's a fine line. It requires education. And I think that's what CrossFit has, has brought to the table. And the, the new guard of exercises are thinking in terms of functional strength as opposed to vanity strength, for lack of a better term, where you're doing isolated movements to try to hone the dimension of muscle and what have you. And so, for example, apparently you might see somebody to be very strong because their physique looks so impressive, but where, in fact, from a standpoint of putting that, that muscle to function, it's just not appropriate. It, just, it doesn't work for them. Now, kind of to, to move topics, uh, metabolic efficiency, and that's something that I know for a lot of folks that have taken VO2s lately in terms of uh, percentage of fat burned to percentage of, of carbs burned as your heart rate um, increases. What do you suggest to really make yourself more metabolically efficient? Uh, well, there's a lot of conversation that is tossed around relative to metabolic efficiency. And mm -hmm. I, know, I know that there are workouts in the CrossFit world, for example, that are portraying themselves as metabolically efficient workouts. And that really becomes a, a function of interpretation. And so what does that really mean? What does metabolically efficient really suggest? And it could be a lot of different things. It could mean, mm -hmm. it could mean that, for example, that you're more capable of burning fat opposed to sugar. 
or it could mean that you're more capable of processing lactate efficiently and developing a, a much more robust and powerful short duration type of an engine. There's just a lot of ways you can trim that. Now, uh, you have to look at the task at hand and what is it you're trying to accomplish and what is it that you need to be able to achieve with your metabolism. And obviously enough, when you talk to people that are preparing for a marathon, the longer they can stave off the, the need to get into their carbohydrate stores, the more efficient they're going to be and the more economical they're going to be with their energy. But um, you talk about, for example, in the case of this conversation we were having earlier, you got a short duration event. The last thing I'm concerned about is whether or not you're going to run out of energy because in a 12-minute event, you're not going to deplete your, your carbohydrate or glycogen stores. Yeah, you'll be in it pretty much the whole time. So, Well, from start to finish, let's just say that yeah. you, you redline from the, from the minute you start to the minute you finish, you're, mm -hmm. st you're still not going to deplete your energy stores from your carbohydrate. It's not even part of the equation. Really, the, the, the biggest thing is uh, fatigue, which is the onset of this uh, debilitating lactate production. That's what you really need to train your body to contend with because it's not going to be an empty tank that takes you out. Yeah. And I think uh, to the point you did yesterday, it was good because I, I would say the, the perception of someone that is training for that event to the theme of almost what we've been talking about the last month is, is allocating recovery as most people just want to probably go 15, 20 minutes as hard as they can without any recovery. Could you kind of touch base on that again? Yeah, well, and again, that's something we talked about in the, the video. And, and again, mm -hmm. I, keep, I keep pointing to the video because it's very rare for me to actually do a sit-down interview with an athlete and have it videoed. But Hunter was kind enough to let me sit down with him and, and, and work that out. So it's, it's, it's pretty interesting, I think, from a standpoint of what a conversation might be between an athlete and his coach. But the difference between just randomly going after intervals is that your intensity may be greater than it could be or should be and your recovery might be either shorter or longer than it should be and with the advent of being tested you start to develop some knowledge in respect to what might be most appropriate from the top end or the bottom end so for example let's say that your focus was uh, heart rate based where your your goal was to see if you can go to maximum heart rate and you kind of disregarded the timeline for recovery where you go up as hard as you can and you're looking for that top number and then because you're ambitious you you don't give yourself the time necessary to get adequate recovery to produce quality work the second interval and what happens is in succession you're going to see regression. You're not going to be producing the power that you did in the initial intervals. And you're basically facing fatigue, which is becoming debilitating. What happens down the road is that your fatigue is more debilitating. It, it takes longer to recover. And then you're basically screwing your workout up for the week. So it's kind of a domino effect. Because the intensity was too severe early in the week, you suffer the consequence of that work, maybe even needing more time off than you possibly would have needed, and you lose some of the progress that you normally would have gained. 
So governing the work is really important and knowing what the top end numbers should look like and the bottom end numbers should look like, when to shift those numbers relative to the outcome of the work is all what we do in the planning stages. So I guess that's the biggest advantage is really respecting the need for the recovery, how much it should be, and respecting the top end numbers and knowing what those should be as well. Yeah, I just think it needs to be said, um, especially by you, um, because, you know, we're going to start to get into the tempo work again, coming off the off season and really putting time for recovery on those high intensity interval training. Or if you're going to, you know, a top uh, threshold heart rate um, lends you to be more successful for the, the rest of the workout and then also recovering um, because you won't have to you in many cases you won't be off because you're fatigued, you know, right. So. Right. Well, yeah. And again, it's it's uh, I don't want to sound like a salesman for the process here, but it's just the reason that the reason that I've been so deeply involved in the assessment work that I've been in for the past 20 years is it's just been so profound. I mean, I've made the analogy on many different occasions where, for example, once I've sat down with someone and I had the opportunity to evaluate their ability through these assessments, I have hard numbers. I have a reality check on who this person is and what it is that we need to do to get them to improve. And absent that information, it's going to be a lot harder for anyone else to advise. And all that's left is experiential work. So you, I like refer to it as the study of one. You've been successful as an athlete, and now you're banging the drum about what you could be if you do what I've done. And you're not going to come to the game with the same assets or deficits that I have going into the game. So for you to try to mimic the work I've done might be completely inappropriate. And so this is where the advantages come into play is I don't have to guess. I can just take a look and within a matter of minutes, I have a really good sense of what your ability or inabilities are. And we can base our training prospectus based on the information we gathered. That makes sense. Now, a question I've gotten um, just from a few friends, and, and you tell me if this is appropriate or not. Um, what would you advise for someone that was not happy with their VO2 score? Um, someone that, let's say, is on the lower end. I know the analogy you use is 50 to 59, you're in the ballpark, 60 to 69, you're in the club. Um, is the VO2 really the only kind of beholder of, of, of potential and success for them? No. Not at all. Okay. Now, I have to tell you that, well, let's use some uh, off-the-cuff analogies. Okay. I've, I've tested, used to be the guy that did all the, the preseason diagnostics for the LA Kings, the professional hockey team, right? Mm-hmm. And we would historically go through about 50 professional hockey players in a given day. And obviously I had a team of guys working with me to, to conduct these tests, otherwise we couldn't get through them because we had like an eight-hour schedule to get all these guys tested. And uh, what they're looking for is going into the season, much like this one, what is the athlete's capacity today? And they use it as a kind of a pass or fail thing. What have you been doing on the off season? Have you been just blowing it? Or are you coming ready to play? And uh, so it becomes kind of a pass or fail thing. Once upon a time, I tested Luke Robitaille, who is respected as being one of the greatest hockey players that's ever got on the ice. And Luke had 
a lackluster score. I'm not going to share what the score was, uh, just for out of respect to him, but his score was on the bottom end of all of the people we tested that day. So their number one player had the worst VO2 score of anyone we tested. And we had a bit of a problem in that because the coach was, he called me up and said, we got a problem, you know, Luke's not happy with his, his test results. And I'm like, well, what do you want me to do? I mean, should I blow in the pipe for him? I mean, you know. <laughs> so the point of the matter I'm trying to make here is that the guy with the least VO2 score was the best performing athlete on the team. And so skill comes into play. Now, if I'm trying to get a sense of who I'm working with, I like to know that I've got a V12 engine to work with, not a four-cylinder. And a four-cylinder never turns into a V12. Now, you can do things to improve upon your VO2 score, but there are other assets that you bring to the table that are quite valuable. And, you know, using a more close-to-home analogy, Hunter's VO2 score is not off the charts. I've had many of an athletes in this sport come to me and had higher scores than he has. So evidence being that if you were giving up, say, 10 points in a VO2 score to another athlete and still beating him, then clearly there's other things at play here. So his skill sets are better, maybe his strength to weight ratio is better. Um, just commonly, the other attributes are uh, overwhelming his inability to produce a high score. Now, clearly we look at that as, boy, we'd love to get this number bigger. And there are things you can do to cause that number to improve, but it is not the win or lose aspect of, of your racing history. Yeah, I just the reason I, I ask it is uh, I I think a lot of people have started to finally drink the Kool Aid of of seeing the importance of this test and um, just a few close friends have not gotten the scores that they hoped. Um, so more than anything, I just kind of wanted to get your perspective on you know that is not the end all be all to to their success. There's other factors at hand. So well, the other end of it is when you're getting the test, it's what you bring. You, if you give yeah. me if you give me eighty five percent of your effort, you're going to get an eighty five percent score, right? Mm -hmm. If you give a hundred percent, then truth be told, you've done what you can do. Mm -hmm. I've seen guys get off the equipment and profess that ah man, you know, I think I could have gone a little more. And my comment to them is, everybody that gets off that equipment says the same thing. Yeah. They always believe that they, they had a little bit more in the tank. If they had a, if they, if I would have been going faster as opposed to going up the hill or going up the hill as opposed to going faster, they're always looking for the thing that was keeping them from producing that score. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, I don't really put that much stock in that top end number. So let's just say that in a perfect world, you gave me another five points. That five points difference in your global score is not going to change the complexion of your training. Mm-hmm or the likelihood that you're going to beat the next athlete. Because mm -hmm. as I suggested, sacrificing as much as 10 points in your VO2 score does not necessarily mean that you're going to lose a race. It's what happens in the midway. What happens between the top end and the bottom end is what really matters, the meat of the subject. That's good advice and good feedback. So, All right, so we're going into the new year, and I know that everybody's chafing to get back after the races. I really hope that the conversations we've had over the last couple of podcasts help to fortify the thought processes and get people to think in terms of making a little bit more 
concerted effort towards preparing for their events as opposed to just racing and hoping that one day the sun will shine and the, the podium will be there for you because racing, as I've said many, many times, is not training. Prepare for these events. I just had a conversation with somebody via social media this morning where they talking about coming out this way and I thought they were talking about coming to attend my clinic, but no, lo and behold, they were coming out to race. And as it turns out, having just conducted a VO2 test on this individual and having just seen the deficits in the way they're moving recently, my advice was blow off the race, come to the clinic, let's get back after helping you to improve and get you to a better place by springtime. And yeah, well, I've already paid for it, la, 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 la. I'm like, okay. And so here we go again, race first, train maybe. <laughs> and, and so for, so my parting advice going into the new year is that if you fail to plan, plan to fail. Sound advice. Any, any parting thoughts on the new year for the folks? Uh, to the same point, hope is not a strategy. And if you are not using heart rate as a basis to whatever your training goals are, you're to Rich's point planning to fail. Uh, and I don't mean to sound, you know, like a dictator when saying it, but at the same time, uh, I just from personal experience before, uh, getting tested and before, you know, understanding my aerobic anaerobic thresholds, I can tell you it's been a game changer. Uh, and that has just been, this year has been kind of my first year racing and I plan to get another test and continue to really further understand, uh, more of this heart rate training and, and, and see it to be uh, successful for me in the future. So It's a good position to take. Let me just say this, if I could be devil's advocate. Now, it would sound like something that shouldn't come from me, but I'm going to say it anyway. Okay. I know a lot of athletes that are successful and they never used a heart rate monitor in their life. And they've developed a really good perception of the way their body responds to work. To be honest with you, I think it's a longer road. It can be done. And if you dig back in my archive, you'll see that there was a time when we were really looking very, very deeply into monitoring power output as runners. And as it turns out, so far, all of those devices that we've looked at have come up short. Problem being that when we run, it's a completely different aspect as opposed to, say, for example, riding a bike. Cycling has gotten away from heart rate monitoring, and they're looking almost exclusively at power. But power on a bike is linear. You can very easily measure power production. And there's been some very, very unique and successful training programs developed around power. However, because there's vertical oscillation that occurs when people run, you can't really get a good measure off power because we leave the ground too much. And so you can't really put a handle on it. And the devices that are out there that are trying to manage to figure this out, try to create an equation to minimize the error in those power output readings, it's just not been there yet. So, so far, I've not seen anything that has led me to believe that it's more effective than using the information your heart is providing you with in respect to how you're faring while you're doing what you're doing. So, yes, uh, I, I concur get a heart rate monitor, start paying attention to the outcome of your training. And regardless, if it's nothing more than a smoke detector, it's still good information. On that note, I want to wish everybody an amazing new year. 
it's been a great year so far for us and really, really looking forward to going to work and seeing a lot of these folks that we've been working with in the new year. And best racing, stay safe, keep your ankles in check, and uh, the best to you. Likewise. Happy New Year. Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.